Hey folks, I'm Dr. C and welcome to my office hours. Uh, today, Barry and I are gonna be talking about um, something a little bit different. So in the past, we've sort of discussed you know, different aspects of, of media, particularly pieces of media. And today we're gonna get into sort of a broader topic and that is the concept of the white savior within film and media narratives. Um, so that being said, Barry, when you think of the white savior, what comes to mind? Uh, me? You are the white Hello. savior of this. Sh no, that's that's fair. I bill you as the white savior of this show. I, um, I am the token white savior of all, all promotional materials for this podcast. Doctor C. Ah, <laughs> uh, good times. Although legitimately, legitimately, if it weren't for you, there would not be a show. So that's you know, there's, I, <laughs> there's a modicum of truth to that. All right. Well, um, in general, uh, I know that uh, culturally, culturally, there's some some baggage with this idea, and uh, you know, people of the likes of me are generally. I know there's individuals out there, but generally, pretty sensitive to the the critique of this story trope. Yeah. Yeah, it uh, it does evoke some feelings, um, especially yeah. allegations of being a white savior in particular, <laughs> right? Uh, which it's it's like anything else. It's a bit of a mixed bag. It would be easy to condense it down into saying, well, this is inherently negative, And there are a lot of very negative qualities to it. But there I won't say there are some redeeming qualities, but there are some positive things that maybe we could learn from and perhaps apply in a more productive way. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. So then let's start with an understanding of what exactly constitutes a white savior. So the first thing is, well, well, may I start with a, mm -hmm. a question that I'm often asked um, when trying to define all of this, um, often mm -hmm. by people who aren't generally interested in actually defining it or knowing what the, the details of this definition are. And that question is, what's wrong with saving people anyways. Why are we complaining about white people saving people? Shouldn't we be thankful for that? I'm gonna let you answer your own question, my guy. <laughs> no, 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 let's, let's, <laughs> let's use that as a jumping off point to sure. defining what this is, because I, I feel like uh, oftentimes, when that question has been asked to me in good faith, like mm -hmm. someone is genuinely ask, asking that, which has happened before, um, I, I find that, that this this parsing out what the definition is and really kind of giving examples of, of uh, how uh, this is a critiquable um, story trope um, is received well. But oftentimes that question isn't asked in good faith. It's meant to be asked in a way to try and shut down any further discussion, right? Sure. Um, so, sure, sure. so I'm I'm interested to hear uh, where where we begin this the, this discussion of the white savior because I think there is a genuine concern. Like, shouldn't we be happy that there's positive? portrayals of white people doing good things for people, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, then yeah, let's let's crack that open a little bit. And actually, I'm going to answer this question by going outside of this particular area of media studies and get into interpersonal communication for just a hot second. Awesome. So, when giving in, um, excuse me, let me back up. In interpersonal communication, in the maintenance of relationships, it is inevitable at some point, if you have a relationship of trust and confidence, that someone is going to ask you for advice, or perhaps you will ask someone else for advice, right? Mm -hmm. It's what we do. We seek out people that we trust, that we perceive have a firm grasp of whatever the relevant subject matter is, that you know, we need their insight on, that kind of thing, and then yeah. we ask for advice. Right. Well, 
when offering advice, if you are the person who is being sought out, when you offer sure. your advice, you have to remember, you have an ethical responsibility to remember that advice is a suggestion, not a requirement. Hmm. And the distinction is, if someone follows your advice, that's their choice. If they choose not to follow your advice, that's their choice, and either one is up to their discretion. They know their situation even more intimately than the person offering the advice, and they are the one who is going to be held uh, responsible for the consequences of those actions. So at the end of the day, that advice has to be followed and that agency has to be respected. I'm sorry, excuse me, I said advice has to be followed. I meant to say the advice, <laughs> when it's offered, does not have to be followed. It comes yeah. down to the agency of the individual. And so going back to the idea of the white savior, why is this a problem? Because when you have a character who saves everybody, you are on some level, at least within the context of the narrative, diminishing the agency of other people. You are reducing the dimensionality of these characters who, in actuality, may have had a solution for their problems and merely needed some help as opposed to having it done for them. And what this does is, in the context of a narrative, it creates a situation where the person who is receiving the help is having their agency taken away. They are framed as uh, locked in a position of vulnerability that is inescapable except for the assistance of this external factor. Mm, mm, mm. Okay, so can you provide a, a narrative example of a situation like this? Sure. Avatar or Dances with Wolves in Space. <laughs> and actually, Dances with Wolves is also something of a white savior narrative. I mean, there's, oh, there's, a, sure. there's a lot more dimensionality to it, but it does sort of boil down to Kevin Costner helping save the Native Americans. Um, become, yeah. Becoming a Native almost overnight and doing it better than them. Um, <laughs> or The Lone Last Samurai comes to mind as ex well. Exactly, right, right, that kind of thing. Um, so, but maybe Avatar, uh, James Cameron's film, uh, not to be confused with that weird movie that M. Night Shyamalan made a few years ago, the adaptation of the uh, uh, TV show Avatar. Uh, you mean uh, the one where uh, all Academy Award nominations were stolen from? I mean, that was that was brilliance on celluloid. It I don't even want to call it Avatar. I want to call it Evader. <laughs> or Evader, as in it evaded all good taste. Um, no, I mean, it, it, to your point... Uh, the the last Airbender film clearly uh, clearly Nickelodeon had some say over how many deaths could happen in the film, mm -hmm. which was zero. Yeah, because you have entire battles of people where you oh, know yeah. they're they're fighting hand to hand combat, swords, fireballs, all sorts of stuff going on, and then at the end of the day, when when the conflict is over, everyone gets up off the ground and walks home. Mm -hmm. and that's that's the end. <laughs> so going back to Avatar, James Cameron's movie uh, with the, the blue aliens and whatnot, Dances with Wolves in Space. So in that one, you have a white Marine who becomes a member of the Navi, who are the alien species in Avatar, and is mm -hmm. instrumental in their you know, successful repelling of the forces of Earth. And yeah. the impression being that it would not have happened were it not for him. And in fact, he was a more skilled fighter in their you know, context, in their terms, than yeah. they were. And so right. this is also often a trope that is um, that uh, goes along with, or it's a variation of the white savior, and that is the Indianized white man. 
Mm-hmm. And so maybe the best example of this was like the Lone Ranger from back in the day, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a Native, totally. he has a native American sidekick. Uh, in this case, it was uh, Tonto, which I would point out, I don't know if this was on purpose, but in Spanish, Tonto means dummy uh, or something along those lines. So mm-hmm. I, I always wonder about whether or not that was intentional. But anyway, uh, so the Lone Ranger uh, was, you know... Uh, living among the the natives, that kind of thing. He was better at being a native. He was better at being a tracker and a gunfighter and all this sort of stuff than any of the natives were and any of the white folks either. So he was a pioneering, in many cases, culturally appropriating, colonizing white man who helped the natives by being better than they were at their own game. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is uh, the Lone Ranger was based off of Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves was the... uh, he was a formerly enslaved man. Uh, he was freed after the end of the Civil War. He became a U.S. Marshal and was one of the most famous U.S. Marshals, and he was a bounty hunter. He was mm. supremely effective. He, I think, ranged the North Texas and Oklahoma area, I want to say. But he is a legendary figure in the cowboy mythos of the West, and also uh, an indication of a fact that is often overlooked, and that is that roughly 25% of cowboys were black. Hmm. Uh but so when that character was super popular and sort of the the you know folk tales of the folks of, of the West or in, in the pop culture of the time, dimes from novels, that kind of thing, when yeah. he became adapted for mass audiences, they made him white. And mm-hmm. not just that, they also took the skill sets that he learned as you know as someone who was enslaved um, and the and the things that he had to do to survive after being freed. Yeah, uh, and transformed that into a white character who learn from natives and surpass them. So th- so there's a lot of the reduction of agency for minorities, both historically and on film, uh, in this trope. And so when we talk about, well, why is it a bad thing? Well, it's because it, it has to exist at the expense of other people. Right? All right. Yeah. Now, where do we want to go from here? <laughs> so then let's talk about what actually <laughs> constitutes a white savior and how we can identify yeah. one within pop media. Right? Oh, cool. Okay. So a white savior is typically, and again, whenever you're talking about media rules, we're talking about broad strokes. There's obviously exceptions or modifications on this, but broadly speaking, we're talking about someone who is almost always a man, right? Mm -hmm. Not exclusively. There are some examples of women who are white saviors. Think the blind side Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. with uh, Sandra Bullock's character. They are a external character, which is to say they are not original to the community that they are helping. Any sort of basketball film where there's a white coach who gets hired to, uh, you know, teach inner city youth uh, basketball or help them become like champions, that kind of thing. That's an example. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, they are also more skilled at the thing that the community they are helping does than the community themselves. Yeah. Right. So they yeah. possess a skill set that is exceptional by the standards of the people that they are helping, and they also assume a authoritative position. For example. It would be one thing if if you have a white character who is all these things. They're external to a community. They are, uh, they possess you know some ex- exceptional skill sets, and they come to a community to help it, and then they perhaps learn from that community. They take efforts to blend into that community, become a part of that community, learn about the people, that kind of thing. And then when decisions are made, they defer to the voices, or at least express the perspective that's informed by other voices in that community in a much more democratic way, but mm-hmm, uh, as mm-hmm. opposed to a white savior who comes in and is then giving orders, right? Yeah. I think about just as per our tradition and, and what we find interesting in 
in filmmaking. Oftentimes, we want that hero narrative. Like we really, we really gravitate as as story creators, but also uh, oftentimes as audiences, it's it's a much easier task of creating a a hero narrative, mm-hmm. uh, a lone person who saves the day, right? Especially in our culture where individualism is so highly prized and everything like that, that like considering a story about uh, a person who goes into a community and learns from them and decides to take a back seat and uh, take a supportive role to the community and letting the community kind of dictate where things go, um, that doesn't that doesn't rub with our, our usual hero narrative, right? Yeah, because the hero has to call the shots. They have to be yeah. in charge. Right. Yeah. And there's a, there's a host of different ways that this manifests. One of my favorite movies is District 9. Oh, yeah. And if you're not familiar, uh, folks at home, so the premise of District 9 is that there's aliens who land in South Africa, and then they're pretty much set up in an apartheid state uh, very yeah. similar to how you know South Africa was pre-apartheid, uh, or during apartheid. Excuse me. Well, it's it's very much in the way that South Africa is currently. <laughs> oh yeah, no, absolutely. You know, that's that, that's a really good point. Um, so it, basically, it's treating uh, aliens as a metaphor for the, the treatment of colonized peoples. Only they show mm-hmm. up and then are mm-hmm. then put into these sort of what are referred to as District Nine, which is uh, you know. Segregated communities. Segregated communities, that kind of thing. Uh, To me, what's interesting about that film is it says, what if aliens aren't invaders, but they're actually refugees? Mm -hmm. Um, It's a really poignant example of, like, how humanity treats what we deem as outsiders, right? Yeah. And so the main character throughout the whole thing is a white guy who eventually, over time, becomes one of the aliens. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so there's all that sort of stuff that goes, and that's a fun movie. I really like it. I tricked my wife into watching it by telling her it was about South Africa, because (laughs) for the the folks who don't know at home, uh, my wife has a bachelor's degree in uh, Africana studies, double majored, history and Africana studies, and um, also did uh, two years of Peace Corps in Namibia, uh, working with children who... Uh, were orphaned by uh, HIV and AIDS, uh, and I, which is to mm. say she's an objectively better person than I am. And I was like, yeah, no, it takes place in South Africa. It's an action movie. And she's like, oh, that's cool. And then she's like, this is Aliens, Gabriel. What have you made me watch? <laughs> what did I tell you yeah. about Aliens? This is, this, is, this is that fake violence. It's like, well, I'm sorry we're not watching true crime. Anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> so... So that's an example of that or, you know, because you have, again, this narrative that centers around that features the oppression of a metaphorical group for you know folks of color, but it centers on a white guy. Um, mm-hmm. That's an example of it. although he's not an expert, but he does become something of an expert by the time the movie is done. We have this man who who clearly like out aliens the aliens and if it wasn't for him he (laughs) no and and what's interesting is there's that question of well could they have told a compelling story centered around a figure who does not look like a human and and that's admittedly at least my perspective that appears to be tough right Mm -hmm. the less human less anthropomorphic a creature is the less uh, sympathetic audiences may be to that. Uh, mm. But that seems to me like a challenge for storytelling, not a reason to discount it entirely. It's a critique. It's not a uh, you know, nail in the coffin, per se. Uh, but also there's a lot of exploding and gore and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a fun time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but another one that comes <laughs> to mind that I forgot about until I was recently looking up um, examples of white savior films is Elysium, if you remember that movie. Yes, yeah. It, Elysium colon Matt Damon, The Last White Man on Earth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so if you're not familiar with that film, uh, I don't blame you. It's a fun movie, but I don't think it did very well in the box office. Uh, the basic premise is that humanity has uh, entered into a sort of 
hyper-segregated apartheid state, wherein Earth is for the poor people, and Elysium, which is this basically pseudo-magical space station, is for the 1%. Right. So can I just say that uh, this week uh, news came out that Jeff Bezos is planning on making a space hotel. I'm just going to plug that real quick that, you know, I'm just saying anyways, I mean, Dr. C, maybe you could be Matt Damon. Yeah. In this situation. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe I can be the Matt I'm just Damon saying this speak. is look at this as an opportunity. Sure. Look out. Let's see how that looks on my CV. Uh, you know, uh, rated a, a space station full of the 1%. I mean, I'll give me a job yeah. with somebody. Um, <laughs> to quote the social theorist, uh, Killer Mike, um, yeah, I don't need a job. And if I did, the oligarchs would be missing, murdered, and robbed. So going back to Elysium. So the idea is that <laughs> Sorry, like. Sorry, yeah. Derailed that. So, no, like as soon as you said Jeff Bezos, my first thought was like his, his sky penis. You know the oh, yeah, the yeah. rocket ship <laughs> that 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 unequivocally looks like male genitalia, like just poor yeah. boy. Um, he paid all that money to be in not even space, right? He was in like the upper limits of the atmosphere. He didn't touch space, like yeah, not even the tip. That's mm. anyway. All right, <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, I have feelings. I also recently heard about how Amazon was thinking of making like company towns again, because oh, that, yeah, yeah, because that yeah. worked so well the first time. Yeah, because um, every time that happens, we're always thankful. Yeah, for it. Yeah, yeah. God Almighty. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, Elysium. Damn it. Let's talk. So Matt Damon uh, plays like the literally he might be the only white guy on screen if if there's any others they're not main characters uh, at least in terms of those who live on Earth there are a bunch of white folk in the space station called Elysium and it's about how in Elysium they have no illness they have no disease because they have the technology to to basically stop all that and then um, or to treat all of it and cure it they can cure cancer what else have you and people live for you know stupid amounts of time and he gets roped into this scheme to like basically make their way onto Elysium um, uh, sort of invaders from Earth to go there and and, you know use the technology and that kind of stuff Uh, but what's noticing about that is that while the cultural element of it is that we're talking about Earth versus we're talking about the poor versus the rich visually it plays out as literally him being the one white guy who does all this stuff and there's a lot of other people of color involved in the plot uh, to do this, but they die or they're not good at their jobs or a variety of things that sort of highlight his competence. Mm-hmm, um, and mm-hmm, so then mm-hmm. it goes back to this idea of, well, could this character who, by the way, is a pretty selfish character throughout the movie, like he's mm. not a freedom fighter. If I remember correctly, he is in it for his own personal gain. Um, could this character have been have been depicted as perhaps a person of color uh, that would have been every bit as heroic and you know also maybe a character construction that would have been a bit more benevolent. Mm. Um, Mm. So if we understand that the white savior exists to be the hero narrative while diminishing the agency and dimensionality of other people, Mm -hmm. then is there anything to sort of learn from this, right? Is, are there any elements of this particular kind of storytelling that can be useful? And I would suggest that there is, we can, this is one of my, one of my critiques of, um, of, the way that we talk about 
identities and uh, uh, in the context of identities that have privilege, identities that have you know disadvantage, things like that. Is that when we talk about like for example men um, and the egregious ways that men are socialized to relate to other people, including other men, including themselves, yeah. and including women and folks from across the gender spectrum, right? Um, the one of my critiques is that we have a a just deluge of things that we're not supposed to do, which is appropriate, but we don't have many good examples of what to do. Oh, yeah, yeah. And pedagogically speaking, I think it is every bit as necessary to have positive examples of this particular identity played out, uh, whatever the identity happens to be, whether it's men yeah, yeah. or white folk or anything like that, uh, as much as, if not perhaps even more so, than uh, sort of than chastisement. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is like there's there's while the critique may be valid that there may be too much emphasis placed on the critique itself, and and we're we're missing the mark if we're not also highlighting positive roles or positive yeah. representations of of these identities. Yeah, I think so. I think it's not enough to tell someone it's like parenting. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you can tell your kids what not to do. But it's yeah. more effective to tell them what to do, right? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in that vein, um, first of all, we can take white characters who are competent and show them in narratives that don't center them, right? Yeah. We yeah, can, yeah. So we can decenter them. Uh, and they can still maintain their competence. They can maintain the things that make them cool and interesting and compelling and relatable, uh, while also centering other people in different types of stories, other types of characters, right, uh, across the sort of spectrum. Because the other thing is that, you know, these characters, these white savior characters are almost to a T, white, heterosexual, males, gender, all that kind of stuff, usually from a, um, uh, sometimes from a exploited background, but often from a middle class or whatever kind of equivalent. Yeah. It, you know, it, it changes based on the flavor of the film. But the idea being that you can have all those things and them not be the center of the story. Yeah. Right? Right, right. So I'll give you uh, an example to compare and contrast, or, or two examples. Um, you saw the movie The Green Book, yeah? Um, yes. Right. Uh, so I saw it, and <laughs> I remember going with my in-laws to see it. Um, and my wife afterward was like, so what did you think? <laughs> she, knows, she knows I've got thoughts on this stuff. I said, well, that's no, a very entertaining movie. It is. It, and it was. It was like I showed that movie in class. It's a good, interesting movie. But the way it gets into white savory stuff is that the main character is Viggo Mortensen's character. And look, I love mm -hmm. Viggo Mortensen. All hail the king. Aragorn, uh, you know, <laughs> Elisar II from, from now till the day, you know, till kingdom come, he is the king. But in that film... He centered the narrative, or the narrative was centered around him, right? And the right. journey of this bigot into becoming someone who was more, less bigoted by the end of it, as opposed to the very other compelling story, more compelling story, and that was of a queer black man and an artist who was touring the South, and what is he going through, right? right. What, what, why isn't the story about him? So you have that kind of thing, where you have two compelling characters, and they chose from a narrative storytelling perspective, I would suggest the less interesting one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And by the way, Mahershala Ali, who's playing Dr. Yeah. Shirley. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's a much more fascinating character to watch. That's a much mm. more interesting story to tell. I mean, again, 
a queer black man going through the South on a piano tour and all the stuff he's dealing with. And most of what we deal with is the emotional development of Viggo Mortensen's character as opposed to Mahershala Ali's. And so, I mean, it would still be an interesting story and you could have this sub character, the, the, the driver that has this character arc throughout the film that yeah. does transform and, mm-hmm. and has the same exact uh, narrative. It's just not the primary plot, right? Yeah. And, and so you can get more into um, the, the more complex identity on screen uh, as time goes by, rather than treating this much more complex uh, character mm-hmm. as just kind of a background stimuli for this driver to have to grapple with, right? Right, right, right. It could have been the B plot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Could have been the B plot, and then so and then, it would have been a really nice, strong B plot too. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Um, and it would have been emotionally compelling. Uh, and mm-hmm. and they even could have ended the movie the same way with that, you know, gathering mm-hmm. at uh, at. Christmas, right? Mm-hmm, and st- mm-hmm. could have kept the same ending, just shifted the narrative focus a little bit throughout the film. Anyway, so you have that, yeah, right? Sure. That example of um, a character who is sort of hogging the screen time again from the perspective of, of the filmmakers, as opposed to the way that like Black Panther or Shang Chi handled white characters, and both mm-hmm, of them had mm-hmm. one or both of them had uh, one protagonist sidekick character, right? Yeah, who was yeah, white. Yeah. Well, I, I, I feel like this bleeds over into a conversation about how media has attempted to, I guess, negotiate with these these um, stereotypes on screen. Like, sure. um, it, you, you see this in discussions about uh, feminism and, and portrayals of, of women and empowered female characters on, on screen and things like that. That, like, uh, a common problem is that uh, writers seem to think that in order to make a woman on screen seem competent, powerful, independent, whatever it might be, uh, whenever what pick your pick your positive value, um, it, that we can't do it without um, hindering the competency and uh, abilities and independence of the men on screen. That we have to somehow compromise the men in some way in order to make the uh, female characters seem powerful, right? Um, my, my favorite example of this is you have a token episode of the original uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, cartoon series where April O'Neil gets her own episode where she gets to be the one in charge and gets to be, be you know, the one that saves the day. Mm-hmm. But the only way that they they seem to have found uh, a way that's acceptable for them to make that story work is to make all the Ninja Turtles complete idiots and every male character throughout there a bumbling uh, moron that can't do anything. So really, nothing changed about April O'Neil's character. Mm-hmm. We just made everyone else less competent than her. And we're, we're going to, you know, like the, it, the, the episode ends with this like, See, women can do whatever they want, and, and you know they're they're strong and powerful. And it's like, no, you just that's that's a you know it's patronizing. It, it's worse in a way because we we say that they they can't actually do anything unless they're the only ones that have sure. a mild ability to you know think their way out of a shoebox at that point. Yeah, and, and that goes back to this idea of positive representation should exist as a independent factor not in relation to anything else uh yeah, so when we talk yeah. about like again going back to the idea of like the white savior 
the characters in need of assistance should be competent in their own right, right? Yeah. Not yeah. Uh, not so that this other character can be elevated. Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, and and I mean, outrage media really likes to pick on this and say that look, feminism or you know these social movements are destroying our media because really all it's doing is making white people look stupid on screen or making men look stupid on screen and and they're making these characters dumber and it's like those who are you know actively seeking out pro social media don't like those depictions either We're, mm -hmm. that's not representing what what we feel like is going to make good media and good representations either we don't want white people to be dumb and stupid by default on screen we want wholesome characters for everyone, right? I, I think it. I, I I don't know about that. I think the Three Stooges did pretty well. Um, oh well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but there's I mean, a place for dumb characters, but it, it it's it's this idea that it's this misrepresentation of of what the critique is. The critique sure. isn't asking for we need to make people of color on screen look awesome. So let's make white people dumb now. Yeah. It's, Let's just like it, make people of color look awesome, period. Yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Well, I, I think a good example of that would be like the Star Wars sequels, the mm -hmm. the sequel trilogy, because Ray helps certainly, but Finn, Poe, uh, they have their own agency and ability, independent mm -hmm. of anybody else. Um, mm -hmm. I do hear critiques from time to time, although I think they're disingenuous, of people who say that well, uh, they dumbed down or they made Kylo Ren weaker because. Uh, they needed to elevate Ray. It's like, no, Kylo Ren um, had his flaws and his failings were because of his flaws that yeah, were consistent yeah, yeah. with the character, not because they were like trying to intentionally de-elevate, uh, or um, what's what I'm looking for, uh, you know, tear the guy down. Um, and I'll left with you, I hated Kylo Ren the entire way through. But that notwithstanding, <laughs> Um, you know, the character wasn't demeaned for the purpose of elevating Ray. Ray was just made competent and Kylo had flaws, which is an appropriate thing that happens in stories. Villains, yeah. ha villains have flaws. That's, that's how they end up failing often. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Anyway. All right, then. So we'll, we'll end on that note. Of course, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at GACruz underscore PhD, uh, as well as on TikTok at Dr. Dot underscore C. And Barry, where can people find you? You can find me at thornburgmedia.com. All right. And uh, yeah, now I'll say thanks for coming by the office. We appreciate it. Hope to see you next week. Bye.